Dan, Dan and Bob and I went and got Mexican food on Thursday. Me and Bob got sick, but Dan's the only one who spared, and he's the guy who chose where we went. <laughs> it was an evil plan hatched against us. Yeah. Test one, two. Okay, thank you guys for all coming out tonight. Um, we've got a series of prepared questions for our panelists, and then we'll open, we'll leave about 10, 15 minutes at the end to open up um, the floor for you guys, so we'll be thinking of questions as they're speaking. Um, maybe we'll play Stump the Preacher. I was joking with Josiah, but it, come up with your hardest questions. Okay, okay, sounds good. So our first question for you guys is, as Christians we believe that the Bible is the word of God, yet we also know that it didn't just appear magically in writing. There are human authors. How do we reconcile the fact that there are human authors and it is God-breathed? And to what extent, as believers, can we be confident in what the Bible teaches us about God and about life? We're going to defer to you. All right, I'll start. <laughs> You guys can just go ahead and contradict me. But, uh, well, I mean, the first question, I mean, the first thing I have to say is sort of a question back. And whoever wrote the question, don't be insulted. Because it sounds kind of coy, but how else would God do it? Right? Only thing he's got is humans. How else is God going to communicate his grace to the rest of the world? Through animals? Through writings in the sky? I mean, I suppose that's possible. The most logical form is through humans. And to do so means that you walk into a quagmire, right, of potential problems. However, having said that, let me say a couple other things. First, God did commun communicate his word through humans. It wasn't magical. I don't think like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sat down and put their hand out with a quill, and God moved it and put the words in there. If you take a look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just for an example, you'll see the personalities of authors coming through entirely different in terms of their personalities. You know, Mark would be like the perfect soundbite guy. He, he, he was a person who understood Twitter before anybody else did. Take a look at his stuff. All his sentences are really short. He's a 140 characters kind of guy. They all start with immediately. Yeah, immediately, yeah. He just tells the story and gets on with it. Paul, his sentences run on forever, right? Uh, they're really improper grammar, to be to be sure. So there's there's an error right there in the, in the uh, writings of Scripture. The grammar sometimes is just not that great. God used whoever he had, and whoever he had was what he used to communicate his word. I think it's beautiful, though, because all their personalities come through, all their styles come through, and I think that's wonderful. The second thing I would say about it is that you've heard of the dual natures of Christ, right? Just, just say yes. Okay. Dual natures, <laughs> dual natures of Christ means that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human. He wasn't a mixture of both. He wasn't sort of some sort of weird kind of thing that wasn't really God and wasn't really human. He was fully God and fully human, which means he was fully open to all human error, given the fact he was human. And it was impossible for him to err because he was God. So what happens in that situation? In that situation, divinity takes on humanity, and divinity uses every part of humanity in all its personalities, in all its obstructions in life to communicate divine truth. 
I think actually when I read the Bible and try to figure out what it means for it to be both human and divine, I need to look back at the human and divine nature of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure I got that figured out for sure, but I think it's helpful. Um, the other thing is this. Um, if God had communicated it in another way, like writing it in the sky, I'm not sure it would have been that helpful. But I think sometimes what we are asking when we ask about human authorship and God's authorship, we're trying to eliminate the mystery. Right? We're trying to say, hey, I want it right. I want it so I don't misunderstand it. And what I want to suggest is, guys, embrace the mystery. Embrace the mystery. If you eliminate mystery, you eliminate the glory of God. If you eliminate all mystery, what need is there for faith? So embrace the mystery. It's not a bad thing. Well, I just wanted to say that when it comes to being confident in what the Bible teaches, I think understanding that element of mystery is really important because there's a part of me that wants to just answer this question and say, so how's the Bible the Word of God, yet also the product of human authorship? Because it is. I don't get it. Does that mean I'm not confident in Scripture and what it teaches? No. But I think it requires us to have this posture of humility before Scripture, recognizing that there is this connection that I can't entirely wrap my mind around. And there's always going to be an element of faith involved in coming before Scripture and trying to understand it and live it out. Um, yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing where sometimes you might feel like someone is looking for you to say, well, when it comes to the original manuscripts, there are so many of the Bible in comparison to Homer's Iliad. So we know that it's historically verifiable. And you can hear people who have all those statistics memorized. I don't have any of them memorized. And I'm still very confident in Scripture as the Word of God. Um, you know, there's an element of faith in that. But I think that there are also some things that Bob pointed out that we can know. Yeah. There's this balance. Yeah, definitely. Uh, when I read the question, I, I tried to read between the lines a little bit. And what I heard between the lines was, if it's human and God involved, well, we know humans make errors. So how do we know that there's not errors? That's what I was trying, that's what I thought I heard in that. Um, and we've all heard that statement, right? To forgive is divine, to err is human. Um, but that, it's true, but it doesn't mean that everything humans do is an error. Um, I checked my eight-year-old's eight math homework this afternoon. 100 subtraction problems, they were all right. Unless I made a mistake. <laughs> but they were all right. Uh, he didn't make an error. Uh, so it's very conceivable that a human wouldn't make an error. Now, you can tell me the story of what you did this afternoon and make no errors. Uh, so just because humans were involved doesn't necessitate error. And I think that's sometimes a... Uh, a leap that we make. Oh, humans are involved, there must be errors. Yeah, it's a logical fallacy, for sure. sure. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so is everything in the Bible readily understandable through a plain reading? And if it is not, how do we know when it is to be read that way, or we should be reading it in a different way, another part? Yeah, <laughs> Uh, this is going to be a cop-out kind of answer. Uh, I think it's a yes and a no. Um, I want to say no because of that keyword. everything. Is everything in the Bible uh, readily understandable through a plain reading? And no, the answer is no. The answer is no. Not everything is. Um, otherwise, everyone 
would agree. Uh, and there's disagreements on some, sometimes some trivial matters, sometimes some fairly significant matters. So not everything is readily understandable through a plain reading. But uh, there's this guy, his name was uh, William Tyndale. He was one of the early translators of the Bible into English. That was really controversial, believe it or not, at the time. Uh, and he said, you know, I want every plowboy to have a copy of the Bible and to read it and understand it. And he, he thought that was an achievable goal, and I think it is too. Uh, again, go back to my eight-year-old. He can read large chunks of the Bible and understand the key points. Um, but not all of it. I think I've been studying the Bible for 20-plus years now, and I think, I hope, I understand it more now than I did 20 years ago. I understood it 20 years ago, but I'm seeing connections now that I maybe didn't see 20 years ago. Uh, my investment in studying and, and you know, digging into the Word, it, it reaps benefits. So yeah, you can read it and understand it, but I also <coughs> encourage you to dig deep, because if you dig deep, you'll understand even more. I've got a fun vocab phrase for us. Okay. So uh, this is a million dollar word. Who knows the word perspicuity? It means clarity. There's this uh, phrase called the perspicuity of scripture. So at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th, in the 16th century, um, up until that point, it was largely the job of the clergy, the priests, to interpret scripture. And so when Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, write that also down in your name book for those of you who are keeping track. Um, we, we've heard a lot of great names in uh, Babylon this semester. But uh, these guys said the perspicuity of Scripture, this principle that was very valuable to them at the time of the Reformation, was that Scripture can be clearly understood by the average person. You don't need someone with an advanced degree in biblical interpretation to tell you what the Bible says. But Martin Luther gave this warning. All because the main points of Scripture are clear, it does not mean that everything in Scripture can be clearly known. And the Westminster Catechism said that the elements of scripture that need to be understood in order to bring about salvation. That there is one God whose son is Jesus Christ, that men are fallen, but by faith, um, through in Christ, through grace, men can be saved. Um, those things can be clearly known, but does that mean that we um, don't need to come before scripture with a posture of real humility? Of course not. There are some things that are really complex, like prophecy, um, and times and places that take some digging to wrap our minds around. And uh, so I think we can be confident and know that scripture um, can be plainly understood, but we also need to be humble in recognizing some things may not come without doing some work. I, I, just to add this, every major historical movement, whether it's political, <laughs> theological, or anything else, is usually a correction of something that's gone awry, right? And in the case that Josiah and Dan are both talking about, they're talking about the Reformation. And Martin Luther offered a correction, right? Like what Josiah was saying, it was the clergy to interpret. As a matter of fact, there were times, this is, is legendary, that the Bible was concealed inside a church and nobody could even get to it. There was a point at which it was actually chained to the pulpit and you couldn't get to it unless you came in and the clergy allowed you to read it. Now, that's an extreme case. They weren't all like that. But for the most part, if you were a layperson, you didn't have the Bible. So Martin Luther's statement about the perspicuity of Scripture is great. But every correction introduces to us an overcorrection. That's just a historical fact, right? So honestly, I think in your generation, the potential overcorrection is to think you can figure it out on your own entirely, right? 
And part of that is an American phenomenon. It's just who we are. We're independent. We make our own way. We do our own thing. We interpret our own Bible. It's me and the Bible. And I think there's a lot of other things to keep in mind when you're trying to understand the Bible. It is clear for the most part. But when you're trying to understand the Bible, you want to think about context. You want to think about genre, right? You know, basically, if I'm, if I'm reading the Song of Solomon, and then I start reading the Epistles of Paul, and I try to understand them the same way, I, it's utter failure. Because the Song of Solomon is an entirely different way of communicating truth, right? So you want to look where you are. Where are you when you're reading this? Right? What, what it, for instance, what's an infallible poem? Can anybody describe an infallible poem to me? How about an infallible song? Right? It's probably impossible for you to give a description of an infallible poem. But you wouldn't say concerning that poem that there's not truth embedded in it. Right? So when you look at the poem, you don't look at it as propositional grammatical truth. You look at it as pointing to something that is the truth. And that's what happens when you get in the Song of Solomon and uh, Proverbs and different places like that. It's just a different world. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say. We've already said that. Yeah. And understanding the different types of literature and scripture is important because yeah. sometimes we might read something that is a principle of truth and say, okay, so the Bible gives us truth principles. And then we find ourselves reading a story about Israel in the Old Testament, and okay, they executed this person for this crime, so that means that's how the church should function today. We can get ourselves in really bad trouble when we believe that all scripture should be read in the same way and how we interpret it. Yeah, part of the inspiration of scripture is recording error, <laughs> and recording immorality, and recording all kinds of things that you don't want to follow, right? Part of scripture is repeating the words of Satan. Certainly don't want to follow those. So, um, yeah. Okay, jumping off um, those answers. So how can Christians know which biblical principles should be applied the same way today as they were in their original context versus which ones should be applied differently? So if a principle is to be applied differently today, how can we know what that proper application is? I'm going to look at my right. Okay. Yeah, I think the answer is all biblical principles should be applied. Um, biblical principles were applied in a certain context. Ancient Near East, you know, ancient Israel, agrarian culture, different. The principles are there, need to be extracted, and we need to figure out, okay, hospitality was commanded, and this is what it looked like in the churches in the ancient Near East. Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, we pull that principle out of hospitality, and we ask, okay, how do we extend hospitality now? I think that needs to be done to every commandment in Scripture. Uh, every principle needs to. We have to ask that question. Okay, how does that apply now? Sometimes we're going to come out with a. It's a one-to-one -one exact correlation. I think that's actually pretty rare because uh, the. The culture of now and then is so different, um, so different. That doesn't mean that scripture doesn't apply. Uh, it means that we have to do some work to figure out how. Yeah, I, I, I concur with that. What Dan said, just a couple of illustrations, right? If if you're in another culture, the principle is to be friendly. You're supposed to be a friendly person, right? Uh, one of the ways for us to be friendly is to wave. Not like that in every culture. You better turn your hand around like this and be like that. In our culture, that might mean something else, right? Uh, you go to certain cultures, and if you extend your left hand to shake with somebody, not a good idea. That is very offensive. 
As a matter of fact, I just had a surgery on my right shoulder, so on Sunday, all these hundreds of people milling around here, I reach out with my left hand, and every time I do, unless I know it's a dumb American like me, I say, hey, I had surgery on the, on the right shoulder, sorry. Okay? Because I know some people, especially people from other parts of uh, this world, would be deeply offended if I reach out with my left hand. What's the principle? The principle is to be kind, generous, right? Friendly to others. So you have to adapt the principle to the situation. So principles are not supposed to be static, right? That's when principles become moralism and legalism, when a principle becomes static. A principle is supposed to be broad enough to apply to diverse situations. That's the whole nature of a principle. One more example. The principle, you and I are created in the image of God. That principle, at its bedrock foundational level, I think you would agree, means that I cannot enslave another individual and hold up that principle. Wouldn't you agree? But in the Old Testament, there were laws that allowed for slavery. Why? Because if you consider the laws that were allowed for slavery in the Old Testament and compare them to every other culture, they were laws that you might consider to be freedom. They were laws that took it beyond the typical form of slavery and gave people more freedom and more human dignity and pointed to them as being created in the image of God. By the time you get to the New Testament, it's even a step further. And by the time you get to Wilberforce, using the principle that Paul laid down in Philemon, not the specifics, but the principle, you argue for the entire overthrow of slavery. Paul actually never told anybody to go out and try to overthrow slavery in the Roman Empire. I'm going to ask him when I get to heaven why he didn't, right? But he didn't. What he did do is he wrote a book called Philemon. And when he wrote that book, if you look at it carefully, there's no way for you to enslave another person and follow the principles of that book, right? So there's the principle. Now the application comes. Yeah, and I think that distinction between principle and application is so important because the principle is objectively true in all cultures. And so yeah. what we run into a lot of times is people might say, well, I don't like that principle, so I'm going to change it to meet what my culture values. That's called relativism. We change truth based on our culture. And so what we're saying is that there is such thing as absolute truth in Scripture. Now, while that principle is absolutely true, the way it might be applied in different cultures could differ. So maybe the way a truth principle was applied originally in Scripture, if we were to carry that over to today and apply it in exactly the same way today, that would be an improper application of the same principle because our culture has changed. So in Scripture, for a woman to wear gold jewelry was something Paul cautioned against. Does that mean that today a woman should not wear gold jewelry? or be open to church discipline? No, the principle is to um, conduct oneself with modesty in corporate worship and in life. Braided hair, too. That was prohibited. That's All why I shaved my head, just to <laughs> say. <laughs> it's totally not, because I'm bald. Okay. There's no, there's no easy way to segue out of that one. <laughs> Would you describe for us the process that you guys go through when you are preparing to teach on a passage of scripture? Yeah, I joked around uh, this week when Josiah asked that question. I said I don't have a process. Um, I, it's only slightly a joke. 
Uh, I do ask a few questions of every passage, whether I'm studying it personally or studying it to, to teach. Uh, and if you were listening to John Magnum this morning in the service, he mentioned a couple of those as well. The first question I'm always asking about every passage is, what does it teach me about God? Um, because if it teaches me something about God, then that is one of those universal absolutes. God doesn't change. So how do not, how now do I respond to that? So the first question I'm always asking is, what is this teaching me about God? The second question is, what is it teaching me about myself? The third is, what is it teaching me about myself in relationship uh, to God? So those are three questions I'm constantly asking of every text that I'm mulling over my own, again, my own devotions or uh, to get ready to teach. Um, when I'm getting ready to teach a passage, I'll read over the passage many times, you know, usually four, five, six times, then try to get some kind of rough idea of what is the main idea that Paul or John or Mark is trying to convey? Why are they telling the story or why are they phrasing it this way? So I'm trying to look for now details that might be important. And then the last question I'm asking is, why is this in the Bible? You know, why do they care so much to include this story? You know, David did a lot of things. Why is the story of David and Goliath important for me to know? Why did they put it there? Uh, so those are questions I'm asking, and once I've dug through those, then it's just a, kind of a matter of organizing it uh, to present the main idea uh, that all those details are, are supporting. And the main idea is almost always about God and what he, how he's revealing himself in the story or in this passage. I don't have a method. I just get up there and start talking. So, no, that's not really true. Uh, yeah, I read it. I reread it and reread it. Um, then throughout the week, I just contemplate it, right? So like if you had a personal Bible study thing on Monday and it was very important to you and you just kind of let it go over and over in your mind throughout the week, I let that happen. Um, some of my best ideas come to me when I'm mowing the grass on Friday afternoon. It, I don't know what it is. It's just where it happens because I've been thinking about the passage. But another thing I do is I do read widely um, in terms of commentaries and stuff like that. Um, I read commentaries that are way to the left of me, right? Because I went to Yale Divinity School, which is not Trinity or something like that. It's, it's way to the left. And so I read those people because I think what they have to say is very important, even if I don't agree with everything they have to say. Then I read people that I know are on the most conservative side. And then somewhere in that, in that spectrum, all along there, I read people of differing theological perspectives, like people who come from a Reformed perspective, from a Wesleyan perspective, from a Lutheran perspective, an Anglican perspective, as much as I can. Obviously, I do this forever, so I can't always uh, read as much as I want to, but I try to read diversely when I do it. But really, at the end of it all, honestly, the most, I think, the most important thing is that I hope that I'm spirit-led to communicate to my audience what I believe my audience needs to hear. So for me, I mean, I've been here for 17 and a half years now. These folks are my family. And I don't know all of you guys, because you guys come and go, but I know something about where you come from, right? And some of the issues <laughs> that you're dealing with. And so as I'm preparing the sermon, I'm, I'm actually kind of visualizing my audience. And I'm thinking about people that I know and what they're going through and all kinds of stuff. It just, it's, um, it's just there. It just sort of hangs over me like a cloud. And from that, I try to speak into the life of the people. Because if I don't do that, it's just dry teaching. If I'm not speaking into the life of the people, 
um, it's just dry. Can I jump on something? Yeah, to yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone reads as widely as Bob, but I try, if I'm getting ready to teach something, to read as well. Uh, one of the main things I'm looking for is people to disagree with me. Um, I learned a long time ago, if I have an original idea, it's probably a bad idea when it comes to interpreting scripture. Um, if no one has ever thought of this before, it's just wrong. Uh, and so there's been many times where I've got this great you know, kind of outline in my mind, and then I go to a commentary, and oh man, okay, throw that one out. You know, that was just me making too much of a preposition, and I should have, or something like that. So uh, I want what I see in Scripture to be confirmed by that both kind of the large spark of the church community and throughout church history, too. I don't want to be... I, I like to be original, but not when it comes to interpreting Scripture. <laughs> Man, I've heard you guys talk about that structured time versus the unstructured time, and it's funny. I would say my most productive sermon preparation is like when I'm running or like driving somewhere. So much more than when I'm sitting in my office. But I have to say that if I don't do that work in my office, then my time running and uh, in my truck and stuff is totally unproductive because um, maybe it's because partly I don't have the base that these guys have of just years and years, but it takes a lot of work to really wrap your mind around a scripture uh, passage in most cases. I don't have the background to really know unless I'm investing a significant amount of time. And so that's something I have to make a priority of, and that starts with reading the passage over and over for probably two weeks, and then digging into some commentaries, um, reading books to inform my perspective on it, and uh, spending hours writing an outline that is probably way more thorough than it needs to be, because I want to teach you guys well and encourage you well uh, with the work. And uh, more than anything, I just it's kind of funny, you know, people might think pastors only work on Sundays, but we would all agree that if we just got up here with our Bibles and read a passage and then we just like wing it, it would be really bad. It would probably be heretical some of the time, um, or just not all that beneficial. And so uh, God's spirit works in a powerful way, but sometimes the way his spirit works is through hours of study, and that's when he reveals things to us that we need to hear from someone else. Can I say one more thing? Josiah is way too humble. Um, uh, this dude does it, right? I, I sit back there in the back a lot of times. You guys don't even see me, and I slip out early. Um, you you guys have got a gift in Josiah. He really understands and executes the scripture well and makes great life applications. Um, I don't care if he is bald. He is really good. <laughs> I'm going to jump on that too. And he keeps the central thing central. Yeah. I mean, you can't listen to Josiah talk without him talking about the gospel and Christ. And if you guys hear that every Sunday of the four years you're here, amen. You know, that's yeah. fantastic. So. <laughs> I forgive you for giving me sick at <laughs> So what are some practices that or talks that you believe will be helpful for us students as we go out in our reading and our personal Bible times? What should we be keeping in mind? I kind of touched on it in my answer. I would just encourage you guys to seek out some resources to give you those context clues that are really going to enrich your study. Um, one of the books that I would highly recommend is uh, reading, for, reading the Bible for all it's worth or reading the Bible book by book. You can invest $10 and vastly increase what you will get out of Scripture just by knowing the original context of some of these books. Um, man, like we've been going through in Babylon this semester in our Home and Away series, reading about Daniel, 
and uh, these Israelites in that land, and I'm reading about prophets at that time, if you didn't understand the background of what was going on in the life of the Israelites, then the words of the text just wouldn't mean as much to you. The story wouldn't have such depth in talking about God with his people and all that they've been through. And uh, doing a little bit of homework, I'm not talking about like approaching Bible study like it's a scholarly activity. I'm talking about maybe spending 10 minutes of doing some background thinking uh, before you come to reading a certain book in the Bible. It's, it's well worth the investment. And there are a lot of other books that you can use to give you that background, or even just an NIV study Bible. Christmas gift from the in-laws, it's a good one. Get yourself a study Bible. Uh, from my perspective, I, I'd encourage you with three things. Uh, the first is, know what kind of genre, like when you're reading the Bible, know what genre you're reading. Uh, what do you mean by that word? Poetry is not the same as a story. Uh, there's certain genres or types of literature in the Bible. One of the biggest is narrative. It's simple storytelling. Uh, you get that mostly in the Old Testament. I mean, what I meant to say is most of the Old Testament is narrative. It's story. Uh, there's also prophecy, uh, where the, uh, the speaker or the writer is foretelling events or seeing visions. Uh, there's apocalypse, the book of Revelation, Daniel, a lot of section of Daniel and Ezekiel or apocalypse. Uh, then there's epistle, which is Paul or John or Peter writing a letter to a certain congregation somewhere and saying, here's what I know about you, here's what I know you're struggling with, here's some counsel, uh, godly counsel, here's some things you need to know. The way you interpret those is really different. Um, if you're reading a narrative, if you think everything you're reading in this story is a prescription, a command, it's going to get weird for you real quick. Um, Stories are often, or narratives are describing, not necessarily prescribing, uh, attitudes even, or actions. Uh, so just know the kind of genre you're reading. If it's poetry, let it kind of just wash over you. Um, don't try and dissect it too much, because, I mean, you ever dissected a poem? It kind of steals the light out of it. Uh, so you know, sit with it and enjoy it. Um, so that would be my, my first. Um, now I forgot my three things. <laughs> I've talked so long. Uh, my second is don't be discouraged if there's a passage that you don't understand. Um, there's passages that people might say they understand, but they don't understand. I mean, there's just some things that are going to be above our creaturely minds, at least for the time being. Um, but I'm confident that even when we're reading passages of Scripture we don't understand, the Spirit is using those to shape us. Uh, to shape our thought patterns, to shape our affections. Uh, and so even if you don't understand it, it's changing you. Uh, and allow that to, to happen. Yeah, that's really good, man. Uh, you guys said a lot of great things. Let me just say just a couple of things real practical, okay? Um, first is, whenever it's time to read the Bible, put your cell phone away. <laughs> I mean, you know what's hilarious to me? I, I get up to talk to you. You guys now, I see you looking at your cell phone, and at first I thought it was rude, then I realized you're following the text, right? You're actually reading the Bible. I, I'm not dissing the cell phone, because I think it's great you can have your Bible with you. What I meant by that was actually what Josiah suggested. Whenever it's time to study the Bible, really put it away, and get a good study Bible. Because a good study Bible gives you the context, and this is critical to anybody's understanding. Context, context, context. It gives you a great context for the epistle. 
or for the larger book, and it really is helpful. So don't just go straight to the text. Go to what it says in the study Bible. And for the most part, you know, I would suggest something like the NIV study Bible too, because it's pretty ecumenical. It's not from a you know a particular perspective, so you don't have to feel like you have to you know move beyond this particular theology or another. It's just pretty straightforward. It just tells you about the text. Okay. Now, um, here, here's the other thing I would do. First, I get a study Bible. Okay. Second thing I do is I would begin with prayer. Right? Remember, how many of you were here in the first uh, this morning? Some of you. There was a beautiful trio that sang this morning. And one of the songs was, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Right? So when you go to the, the scripture, you really are asking the Spirit of God to open the eyes of your heart. Because Paul promised that he would. Right there in the text. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be open. So you can understand the depth of the, the meaning of this and live for Christ. So pray that way. Okay, so first is a good study Bible, second is pray, and then I have five questions for you. This sounds really pompous, but I wish you'd write these five questions down, honestly, or put them in your telephone. <laughs> They're very, very simple, <laughs> inductive questions that can be asked of any text. Okay, They might not all be equally applicable to every text, but ask these questions. Here's the first question. What are the key words? Okay, I'm not asking what do the scholars say are the key words. I'm saying, what do you think the key words are? Okay, you've just read 15 verses, and the key words for you are words that things hinge on. You think, now I need to know what that word means in order to understand this better. So first, Adderall, ask what the key words are. You can find the key words now. Man, you guys are so blessed with the internet age. You can find key words and go right to the source on the internet through biblical study stuff, right? And find the background of that word. So what are the key words? Second question, what's the main idea or main ideas? And this is a, a question for you to answer, not for you to find somewhere else. You're looking at the Bible itself and you read it. You say, what are the key words? Second, what's the main idea? You might have to read it five times and the main idea will finally emerge, right? Third question, this question relates to um, the text too, um, but it, it, it's, it's this. What is new in this text to me? It's likely that if you've been around very long, you've probably already read this text, right? So what you're looking for is something that jumps out that you say, it's an aha moment. It's a spirit moment if you pray. You're going to see something you didn't see before on many occasions. So you ask yourself, what's new? What, what just popped out that I never saw before? That's really helpful in terms of studying the Bible. Am I on track the fourth question, right? The fourth question is what challenges me in this text? What kicks my spiritual butt, right? When I read this text, what just really challenges me? Because almost always when you read the text, you're going to get a challenge, right? About discipleship, about living for Christ. And the final question is number five. What gives me hope? What gives me hope? Every passage of scripture has got the gospel embedded in it. It's the good news concerning Jesus Christ. It's hope for everybody. Try those questions on to size when you read the Bible sometimes. It might be helpful. Okay, thank you. So that was our prepared question portion. Now we're going to open the floor up to you guys. 
ask any question you like. Challenge. Well, I mean, um, obviously he should have done anything, right? But I can't imagine, I guess this is what I meant, I can't imagine a more appropriate way to communicate truth than to communicate it through human authorship. Because that's how we do it, right? You and I communicate with each other just like we're doing right now. We also communicate with each other with body language. We also communicate with each other at, on the basis of affection, and physical affection, all those kind of things. We're human. We're, we're that way. So the Bible is that. And it reveals so much of that to us if we look at, uh, look at its context. So I just can't imagine that there's a higher or more holy way, in spite of the fact that we're sinful, to communicate than communicating through human beings. Um, after all, God's trying to communicate to human beings. So it seems like he ought to use us to do it. Yeah. Uh, Dan, what context were you saying where... You said you don't like to be original, you'd rather have other people agree with that. What context was that from? Yeah, I mean, if I'm reading, say, the book of Romans, and I'm reading Romans 3, and something just dawns on me, oh, look at this, this fits together this way, and uh, this is my interpretation now. If I can't find anyone else that has that same interpretation, chances are I'm wrong. Um, because the church has been studying the Bible for in centuries. Uh, for me to come along and say, I see something that no one else has ever seen, um, yeah. I'm wrong or I'm really arrogant. <laughs> um, what do you mean, how can you be wrong on interpreting the Bible, other than like contradicting God's like image and how he is? Yeah, I think scripture is intended to communicate truth. Uh, and so if if for, for instance, the Bible says, I'm a sinner, and I interpret that to mean I'm not a sinner, well, I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, there is objective truth that is there. Um, we need to interpret Scripture to understand what the objective truth is, but the objective truth isn't whatever I want it to be. There is truth there, and I have to interpret what that is. Uh, and so if it's, my interpretation isn't in alignment with what is true, what the author is trying to say, the ultimate author is God, what the ultimate author is trying to say through that passage, that I've misinterpreted it, and I'm not going to be um, teaching or, or believing truth. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I was like, I was thinking more along the lines of like, you thought of something new, but it didn't contradict anything in the Bible. That's what I was thinking more, and that's what. You know what, and that happens to me all the time, where I'm reading a passage, and I see something that is clearly true, but maybe not what that passage is trying to convey. It happens all the time. Um, that's not horrible, but if I'm doing that, then I'm missing what that passage is trying to say. Uh, so I want to stick to what that passage is trying to say as closely as I can. And so I can be wrong. If I impose my understanding from maybe another passage on that passage, um, I might be right in what I say, but I might be grounding in the wrong text. Can I add a footnote to that, Dan, you correct me if you think I'm going wrong. Sure. Okay? But the question that you guys ask, whoever asked it, 
was in the context of us preaching. Right? And so, remember there's two different places here. When Dan's getting up to preach, he wants to make sure he's speaking as clearly as possible what is the historical truth concerning God. On other occasions, when he's doing a personal Bible study, there may be particular applications that emerge for him that he wouldn't deliver to everybody, right? Because he would be a little skittish about that. But for him and God, this is something you need to consider, Dan. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I don't feel as confined to a passage when I'm in, in my own devotions. Uh, I could be reading this passage and the Spirit could be saying, but this is true. Remember this passage, too, in your family right now. And so... Yeah, but when I step up to the pulpit, I'm usually concerned with one passage and explaining what that one passage means. So, yeah. <coughs> Pray that God will work in the midst of our lives and allow us to see that His Word is true 
and trust him in the midst of that journey because we are all on a journey with God. And uh, sometimes we find ourselves at different places in that. And that's okay. And there's, there's a million things that I encounter in my day that I believe are true, but I can't fully explain. Um, I know the very rudimentary basics of how a, a car works. There's so much beyond what I know, but it's a mystery to me. It might as well be, you know, physics of the highest caliber, um, how a car works. But I trust it. Uh, I see how it's working for me, uh, and I see how the scriptures are working for me. Um, not just giving me peace and things like that. I, I see evidence that they're true. I don't know if that's getting to, to your question or... Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know for some that find some of the principal stories irrational, particularly in the Old Testament. It's like it's an issue to read, um, to extract meaning, but to read it as allegory and kind of disregard the story. Is it possible to do that in a way that doesn't belittle God or, you know, restrict him to what our thinking around our minds are? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'll say something about that. Allegory is about untruth, right? So um, the question then becomes, which parts are allegorical, or which parts are historical narrative, right? So, for instance, just for me, when I read the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, I don't see that as historical narrative. I see it as a story concerning God as author, creator, and sustainer of all things. But I don't see seven literal days. 24-hour days and all those kinds of things, right? So at some level, someone would tell me, you're not reading the Bible literally there. And I would have to admit, yes, I'm not reading the Bible literally there. I love what Madeline Lingle said one time. Uh, she's the author, does anybody remember, know about the book Wrinkle in Time? Okay, I wrote children's literature. Madeline Lingle was asked this question one time about whether or not she took the Bible literally. And she said, I take the Bible too seriously to always take it literally. Right? Because the Bible, in terms of its genre, back to that word, is not intended to be taken literally all the time. Sometimes it's meant to be taken propositionally. Other times it's meant to be taken differently. But still embedded in there is the truth concerning God and humanity. Right? So, I'll give you another example. There's a lot of biblical scholars that think Job, the entire book of Job, is an allegory that Job himself did not actually exist as one person, at one place, and at one time. Now, if you don't believe that, that historical part of it, right? If you believe it was a, an allegory created to teach truth, there's nothing wrong with saying that that allegory is absolutely the inspired word of God. Because it's communicating a particular truth concerning God and humanity, primarily as it relates to suffering. The question then becomes for me, is there reason for me to believe that it is a historical narrative and not allegorical? Am I pushing away the historical narrative because it's inconvenient to me? Because it frustrates me? Because I can't explain it in its entirety? Because it embarrasses me in the presence of other people who don't believe it? That's probably a trigger mechanism that I need to be really aware of, right? If that's what's happening and going on inside me, it's likely that it's my sinful nature that's telling me, no, no, that can't be historical, it's got to be allegorical. But there are occasions where allegory is the best way to interpret scripture. And allegory is a vehicle of truth. 
just is, always has been. It's not fantasy. Allegory is a vehicle of truth, and it's an important vehicle of truth. Thank you guys for your questions. Um, that's pretty much the time that we have for now. But if you have more questions for them, feel free to ask them during dinner. Um, because I'm assuming you'll be sitting There's people, so they'll be around. So um, you could ask them your questions. Great questions. A lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. <laughs>